Welcome to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. So you just uh, had Hanukkah, which I hope everybody enjoyed. And um, we also had, right, the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. And there's a Midrash about Hanukkah, which says the, the original Hanukkah before the Maccabees was Adam Rishon, was the first human being. And uh, the first year they left the garden and they were out in the year and the days started getting shorter and shorter and shorter. It was really scary. <laughs> they thought maybe it was all going to end. That was it. It's going to get shorter and shorter and shorter until no more light. All done. And then all of a sudden it started getting longer again. The light started to increase. And they celebrated and they were joyous and in honors they lit eight days of candles. Right? Sort of a primordial Hanukkah. <coughs> and really a Hanukkah which is about renewal, about what happens when we sink down into the darkness and how we begin again, how we start again. And it's also the secular New Year. Um, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about beginning again, how we begin again. Take the next few weeks talking about beginning again. How we renew. You know, Hanukkah is one of the few holidays we have where we have a Rosh Chodesh, also in the middle of Hanukkah itself. And we have that sense of it becomes, you know, dark, 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 dark. The moon disappears. And then when we are renewed and we say in Kiddush Levana, that we are atidim litchadesh kamota. We are in the future, we're going to be renewed like the moon. Which is the moon has this process of waxing and waning. We go through the same process. And um, I had a friend... Uh, for many years, it was like, how do you tell when the moon's maxing? And how are you telling the moon's waning? I don't know if you know how, but the way I learned how was that when it's waxing, it's got a, it's like, it's like a D for daring. And when it's waning, it's a C for cowardly. <laughs> really, right? You're running away, you're being daring and opening. So you know, part of the question is, how do we touch that place of, of beginning again? of daringness, of how we take that next step, how we renew who we are. Um, and of course, that's also the process of tshuva, right? It's like just starting over and over again, returning again and again and again and again and again to who we are. And this returning is really a gift we give ourselves. And it's a gift we give ourselves, as you may have noticed, I certainly noticed tonight, um, over and over again in the practice. We just start again. It's not about staying somewhere, right? Anybody's practiced, noticed it for at least the first five minutes. <laughs> now we can give up the illusion of the mind just staying somewhere, right? The mind goes somewhere else, uh, and then we return. We come back again and again, again and again. <coughs> What's so promising about that, I think, is that we can just start again at any moment. There's no way to get too lost, right? The mind can get very, very far away, and the moment you notice it, oh, the mind wakes up, and all of a sudden we've come back. And what you might also notice is that, in fact, this returning, this waking up, is actually a kind of inherent state of the mind or the soul, the heart. That is, you're meditating, right? The mind gets lost, and then spontaneously you just notice that you're lost. Right? You notice it's like you don't do that. You don't say, oh, I should stop being lost. As soon as you say that, you've already woken up. You've already noticed you're lost, right? 
then you might use some willpower to bring the mind back to the breath, for instance, to bring back to a focus. But the actual moment of waking up itself, the moment of recognizing I've been lost in fantasy or memory or thought or sensation or whatever the mind got lost, just happens on its own, which is like this gift. It's like the mind just spontaneously does it, does it on its own. <coughs> and in a certain sense, whenever we wake up, as soon as we begin again, as soon as we turn on again, then for that moment we're awake. We're awake right then. Right? It's like, oh, awake. No, then we're asleep again, maybe. But we're awake for that moment. As a Zen master said, there are no enlightened people. There are just enlightened states. Right? It's like, for a moment, I'm awake. Oh, then I'm awake. And then, if I continue being awake for more time, I become more awake, right? <laughs> then I fall asleep again, and then I wake up. It's like Rambam, in the beginning of the Guide to Perplexed, has this parable he tells. He says... Um, touching divinity is like flashes of lightning. So for most people, it's like everyone's in a long, 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 long while. You know, maybe there's a flash of lightning and you see something. <coughs> the closer you get to God, the more and more and more and more you notice the flashes. But the prophets, it's like flash, flash, darkness, flash, darkness, flash, darkness, flash, darkness. Which is really continually waking up, just opening again and again and again. But often we don't open again and again and again, Right? Because basically we get stuck in our ways. We get habituated. So this is the way I do it. I'm not coming fresh to this moment. I'm not seeing things anew. I'm just sort of coasting along. This is the way it is. This is the way I experience life. This is the way I respond. And Rabbi Nachman Abratov says, in this part, he says, most people see themselves as skenim, as old. Right? Stuck in their ways. They can't change. And he says, it is forbidden to be old. <laughs> Right? It doesn't mean we can't actually age. We're all going to age. That's inevitable. Right? Well, he did. Right? Well, he did. To a certain point. But, you know, it's forbidden to think we can't change. Right? It's forbidden to think that I'm stuck. That there's some place where I can't renew, where I can't transform myself. He said, Nachman said that, he merited what he did from the fact that he began every time from the beginning. Often multiple beginnings in a single day. And that all the confusions and failures of a person come from the many thoughts of yesterday coming into today and tomorrow from hour to hour. It's like if we're just... The confusion comes from not being present. And every time we renew, every time we renew, it's a call back to being present again. And that's the essence of tshuva. Right? It's like stepping back from the patterns, the places in which we think we're stuck, the, the person we thought we were, and taking a moment to say, actually, I can be whoever I want to be at this moment, right? I'm actually not trapped. Just because I was, even two seconds ago, I was whatever I was, that doesn't necessarily condition me, right? It doesn't condition me. We talk in this practice um, about causes and conditions, Right? Things bring cause and effect into being. And um, in Hasidic language, the Magad Medrash talks about it. He says, you know, there are just like things happen in the world and it causes the next thing and causes the next thing. But he says, when we awake up, when we're present, we touch the place of ayin, of nothingness. And that place of ayin is just the place where all of a sudden I've tapped outside of the chain of causes and conditions for a moment by being really present. I touch what he calls sort of the basic nature 
of reality, right, which is emptiness, which is openness, which can take on any particular form in a particular moment. And when I'm in that state of openness, oh, then I can make a choice. Then I can manifest in this way, or I can manifest in that way. But I'm not trapped by what became before. And I'm not locked into what became before. And that's the way in which, it's one of the ways in which um, this practice is a practice of freedom, right? Because if we don't stop, in a certain ways, we get locked into a kind of being an automaton. Right? We get locked into being a robot in a certain way. It's like, oh, things happen, I react. Things happen, I react. Things happen, I react. It's like, sometimes I react well, sometimes I don't react well. However I'm reacting, I'm just reacting based on my conditioning, right? Based on the nature of who I've been up to now. But when we stop and we get present, all of a sudden there's a possibility to see, oh, I actually don't have to respond based on what I've been up to now. It doesn't mean I can't respond based on what I've been up to now. That may be the wisest response because I've developed some wise habits. Wonderful, right? It means I can actually pause for a moment and see what's actually the wisest way to respond in this moment. How can I not be trapped in reaction, but actually choose how to respond instead, right? It's that place of openness and freedom which allows me all of a sudden to respond in a different way, to bring something different into the conversation. So Nachman continues in this drasha I've been, I've been um, quoting from um, the Kutei Halachot, actually on Hilchot Basar V'chalav, and Kashrut. He says, a person needs to see himself as if he were born every day, and even every hour, with no preconceptions, right? No baggage, no past, no future. And actually this is true, he says, because we know we say, Hashem mechadesh b'choyom tamid ma'asei b'reshit. The divine renews every day, always, the works of creation. It's not that creation didn't happen, it's just continuing. Actually, there's constantly renewal, constant change. It's the very nature of, of, of transformation. Then he says, quoting the Ari, he says, the upper worlds are constantly changing, constantly in motion, the heavens, constantly in motion. Um, and on this total side, but it's fascinating, is that you know, there's a whole sort of Greek tradition which is that perfection is actually um, non-motion. Perfection is stillness, right? That's why like, the planets are more perfect than us, because they move at least in a circular motion, which is a more perfect motion, and some of our medieval philosophers take that on. But the Kabbalah says, no, 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 perfection isn't stillness. Perfection is actually um, integrated movement, right? Perfection is when sort of the masculine and feminine are in a kind of divine dance together. Perfection is the beauty of motion. And he says, why is that the case? He says, why is the heavens in movement always? In order to indicate to a person, wherever he is, in any state, how change is always possible. How he can always be closer to God. So even if until now, he was whatever he was, right? Even if now he was whatever he was, you always have the power to begin again from now, Me'ach Shabi says. You can begin again, begin again, begin again from this moment. So, we begin again, right? We begin again at any moment, at every moment if we can. We begin again. And in doing so, we've just seen, we actually mirror, according to this idea, the, the very nature of the world. Sort of why we can begin again. Because the world is actually beginning again all the time. The world is never stuck in what it was. It's why revolution is possible. It's why transformation is possible. And we in our practice try to tap into that possibility of transformation which is always there. And we begin again, so, right, an old Midrash says, Bereshit, Baralakim, Etashmaimbarat. What's Bereshit? What's Reshit? So there are many answers to that, Midrash gives. But one of the most important ones, which happens again and again, is wisdom. Right? 
That's the verse of The beginning of wisdom is the awe of God. And that wisdom is present right in the Bereshit, right in the beginning. Right? With that beginning, with wisdom, with beginnings we are created. And even more than that, because this is the basic nature of the world, with beginnings the divine is created. That is, the Zohar reads, Bereshit bara elokim at Bereshit, with wisdom, created, what was created? Elokim. What's the first process of creation, not the world. God is the object of the sentence, not the subject, right? The first thing that's created is God. That's the first thing that's created. Because God is also a dynamic process. And every time we're willing to begin again, in a certain sense, every time we stop and bereshit in the beginning, the divine is recreated. We see freshly, we see creatively, we're no longer tracked in old patterns. And in that sense, we might read the creation story, as the Zohar reads it as the creation story of God, we might read it as a story of our own beginnings, our own awakenings. Right? So it says, We are in this normal state of chaos, of darkness, of lack of clarity. But even when we're in that place of chaos, of confusion, right? Well, in that place, it's overwhelmed. It's like, it's too much. I can't handle it. I can't do this and that and the other thing and everything else. The Torah tells us that Ruach Elohim, the divine is hovering right, right, right there in the water. It's like it's close enough to kiss. Right? Even when we think we're totally lost, we're lost in the chaos, we're just this, 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 this far from divinity. It's like the smallest movement, the smallest break, boom, all of a sudden we're in contact with the divine again. And then there's light, right? Be Hashem, Elohim, by Yor, by Yor. In that light, a midrash says, right in that first light, we could see from one end of the world to the other. We have like total perception, total awareness. And the midrash, the midrash says, this is the light which is hidden for the tzaddikim until the world to come. Olam haba, the world which is coming. Because whenever we wake up to awareness, that olam haba is actually here with us right now. It's actually Olam Habar. It's not, it's not Olam Sheyavo. It's not the world that will come. It's the world that's coming. It's constantly coming and changing and beginning again and again. When we touch this, I want to sort of offer it to your experience. Basically, we experience life. Right? When we wake up and we open, we start again, we are vivified. Right? In the Torah, it means every manner of life, every kind of creation and creature, including human beings, come into existence, right? But in our own life, there's a kind of vibrant, vivid, pulsing energy. It's this enlivening nature of waking up. We feel asleep. We feel tired. Maybe you feel tired. I feel tired, right? It's like we're confused. We don't know where we are. But if we just for a minute, we're like, okay, what's here right now? What's here right now? Just right now. What's actually here right now? All of a sudden, we're awake. We're alive. We're present. And we're free. <coughs> but of course, often we don't begin again. We don't start anew, right? Often in our life, you may have found this, in our relationships, in our difficulties, it's like the same pattern over and over again. Somebody triggers us, we have the same response, right? We feel hurt, we get angry, we get aggressive, we hide. 
you pick your favorite patterns, right? I'll pick mine. Right? We all do whatever our favorite patterns are. We figure it in some way we respond to the pattern. And often we do that, right? Because we think we know. We think we have it figured out already. That person says X, and I know that means yada, 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 yada. And I'm already responding to what I think I know that that statement means, right? But I don't know, really. I don't know, right? Maybe I'm just wrong about what that means. Maybe I'm wrong about their intentions. Maybe I'm wrong about their reaction at that moment. But it's hard for me to admit that. Or it's hard for me to even see that I may be wrong because I go into that automatic place of preconception, right? Often it's hard for us because it's kind of safer to be in the pain of the known than the uncertainty of the unknown. At least if I know it, everybody's in their box, and I know who you are and who I am and how I'm supposed to respond, and I'm right and you're wrong, and whatever it is, like it's all tied up, it's all clean. Right? But as it says in Brachon, the Gemara, it says, Demar mar, Teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Right? It's a great lesson as initial response. Teach your tongue to say, like, oh, don't know, actually. Don't know. Don't know what's happening here. May have been true before. Maybe I think this is the same reaction, same pattern I've seen last time. But you know what? Actually, maybe it's totally different. Maybe it's totally different. I don't actually know. And it's hard to admit that we don't know. Sometimes, right? It's hard. If the mind is full of things, you can't begin again. There's a story of a professor. I don't want to tell you Zen stories today, but he went to visit a Zen master. <laughs> and he came in, he sat down to have tea with him. And the Zen master started pouring his tea. He kept pouring. And all of a sudden, the cup started overflowing. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, oh, is the cup overflowing? <laughs> He said, yes, the cup's overflowing. He said, ah, no more room in the cup. He said, there's right, no more room in the cup. He said, yes, like your mind. <laughs> as long as your mind is full of what you think you know, there's no more room in the cup. Daniel Borstein, who wrote a, a book, The Discoverers, about people who went out and like sort of, you know, the Europeans went out and charted the world, basically, right? said, <laughs> the greatest obstacle to discovering the shape of the earth, the continents and the ocean, was not ignorance but the illusion of knowledge, right? When they didn't know that, but they thought they knew. It must be like this, it must be like that. And then you're trying to integrate it into everything into like what it must be, but that's not the way it is, right? It's actually different than you thought it was. And we get so stuck in these patterns, I mean, in like ridiculous ways. I don't know if it's with you, but you know, it's like when I was like seven, I didn't like spicy food, right? And it took my mom, like, 20 years after that to realize I was fine with spicy food, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Because, like, nothing wrong with her. It's like, we all do in families. It's like, somebody is X or Y, or they have some label or some their way of being. And all of a sudden, it's like, that's the way it is. I mean, it might change, but we're not going to notice that, right? Unless it's, like, put in our face that change is happening. And then it's like, oh, my God, somebody's really changing, right? A little scary, a little uncertain, a little dangerous, right? And we do it to other people all the time. I mean, you have to think about your own examples. But times when you've met old friends or family members, whoever it is, that you have them in some certain category or place. And then they're different. Right? They're just different. And hopefully, if we're wise, we do adjust to that. But often it takes a little while, right? <laughs> so we have to like, oh, right? Different. Not, not the preconception of my mind or what my mind thinks it is. Right? Mind mistaken there. Mind confused.
Right? He was wise, the one who learns from everybody. But you can't learn from other people if you think you know it all already. Right? If you think of all the answers, then you can't learn from anybody. The training, rather, is to know that we don't know. Right? It's like Rav Nachman says, and also more of a Shemesh says it, Tachlit Adat Shalolodat. The end of knowledge, the kind of pursuit we're on in the path of knowledge, is to actually recognize how much we don't know. How much we're not sure, how much we're not clear. How much we don't know what the next response is. How we don't know what the next reaction is. And when we know we don't know, the kind of delight of it, the, the pleasure in it, is that um, we're open to being surprised. Right? It's like when you know, nothing's surprising. Right? Cynicism is one form of always knowing. Right? Cynics are never surprised. Like, oh, yeah, I knew that would happen. Oh, I knew that would happen. Whatever. Dismiss it, right? There's joy and surprise. It's like, oh, it's totally new. This is amazing. This is so interesting. I never saw this before. I never would have experienced that before. It's like, I was, a few weeks ago, um, hiking. My wife and I went out hiking for our anniversary, right? And we went up to the north. I'd never been there before. Where we'd gone. So we went to the Banyas. We've been there before. And we hiked up to this place, Mibzar um, Nimrod, Nimrod Fortress. I don't know if you've been there. This was like totally amazing, right? <laughs> Castle. We sort of vaguely knew there was a fortress up there. We hiked up, and you get to the ridge, and there's this like huge, amazing, insanely preserved castle. Like the best. I've never, I've never seen anything like in Israel, like that well. Like it's got everything. There's cisterns there, there's spiral staircases. It's this crazy, amazing thing, right? And, you know, we were open. It was a lovely day. We were relaxed. Total surprise and total delight, right? It's like, oh my God, there's a whole fortress here, right? <laughs> now, I lived in this country for a number of years, and I've never been to this fortress, right? It's like so amazing. How did I never see that before? And when we're open, then it doesn't take like some new fortress to have that experience, right? Because the reality is that that happens all the time. It's like, oh, I didn't know that about you. Oh, I didn't know that about me. Never mind about you, right? <laughs> so I didn't know that about me. Like, oh, I felt that, or I could respond that way, or this thing is true, or that thing is true. Oh, huge, totally different, totally transforming. But most of the time, we have this idea of knowing which constructs our world and shapes our existence and which limits it. Rashid Chachma says, <coughs> talks about this idea of projection. He says, we, we see the world in a certain way, and then it produces the world in that way, to our detriment. Um, instead of being open to what's really true, and the example he uses, he says, look, you know, if you think somebody doesn't like you, you're making it up your story in your head, you think somebody doesn't like you, then you'll come to not like them. <laughs> and then they really will not like you, right? But it's actually all founded on this projection you have in your mind, which you're saying, oh, they must feel like something, why? But you don't actually know the way they feel. You didn't talk, you didn't ask them how they felt, right? You just like assumed, oh, that person doesn't like me. And then he says, and eventually you can do a terrible thing because of that, right? Like you get into this whole story in your head, you do whatever, you treat the person badly. And it just started with this thinking you knew, which is, oh, I think because of the way they looked at me or what they said or turned their shoulder, whatever I interpreted, you know, that they had feelings X and Y towards me, which I didn't know, right? You can think about yourself walking into a new situation or meeting a new person. And often we formed so many judgments and evaluations in just our first few moments. That this situation is like this, or the job is like that, or the person is like this. And it's one of the useful things about practice, because if you sit, right? Any of us who sit, 
we see how quickly judgment arises. You may have noticed that, like mine. Oh, judge, judge, judge this, judge that. Bad meditator, good meditator. <laughs> like that person, don't like that person, this is boring, this is interesting, right? Whatever it is, like just judging, 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 right? Based on almost no information, right? I mean, the classic example thus, for those of you who've been on retreats, you'll go on retreat with somebody, you'll be in total silence with them for a week. You don't know anything about them. And your mind has created tons of stories about who that person is, right? Finally, at the end of the retreat, you talk to them for five minutes, and it's like, wow, it's totally wrong, right? <laughs> There's actually no relationship to the fantasy my mind had between what the person actually is, right? That's like classic. They call it like Vipassana romances, right? You've fallen in love with the person, you've had kids, there's a whole thing, or like you really don't like the person, right? Whole story going on, no connection to reality whatsoever. And it's this whole practice of prejudice, literally prejudging, right? So I think I mentioned something before, but I just learned about it recently. I'm still so excited by it. So there's this, um, I think I'll stop soon. So there is, um, there are these tests, which is part of this Harvard study, which you can also do online. I encourage you all to do this online, which are about prejudice. And what they do is they basically show you um, various things together, but very quickly. So your subconscious mind is responding. And depending on how long it takes you to connect various things together, you can see the level of prejudice. So like, it takes you a few milliseconds longer to connect the black face to the word good than to connect the white face to the word good. And uh, you can do it, I've done it, and it's like, oh, shit, you know, I'm a racist, right? <laughs> like, not because I tried to be, but because like, I grew up in this room culture, and despite my conscious opposition to that, it's like, oh, right, still have that in me, part of, part of who I am, right? Okay. And it talks to study about also how we like, counteract that and, like, you know, and how you can be more reflective about it. And of course, that changes it. Like, we can be more reflective and change that. But still there in the subconscious process. So a study just came out. <laughs> and the previous things I read all said there was almost no way to... The only way they knew of to actually start changing the subconscious process is to start to form more positive associations between whatever group you had prejudice against and uh, positive things, Right? So, like, you read about Martin Luther King or something, right, and black folks and that reduces racism, right? That's the only thing they've found. So a recent study says, shows that actually mindfulness helps. Cultivating mindfulness, meditating, for instance, before you do it, helps. And what's fascinating is that that means it helps your subconscious mind, right? It makes total sense why it might slow you down and be like, okay, before I jump into prejudice, I'm going to do that. But what I think... Fascinating, really powerful is that what it implies is, and you know, obviously have to do more studies to confirm it, etc., is that actually training in this capacity to sort of not judge whatever arises, but just to be present in whatever arises, starts to short circuit those subconscious prejudices. And that's really powerful. It's like, oh, I, it's, I'm actually training myself to begin again in this moment, to not see things through the lens of the way that I've always seen things. So we're going to pause there, right in the middle. We'll begin again next week <laughs> with the same topic, sort of exploring more deeply what's this process and how do we do it? Like, how do we do, can we do the practice of beginning again? So I went a little bit longer at this time. Uh, but again, we'll open it up. Uh, just questions, thoughts, things that anyone wants to share about their experience, about the practice, about anything we talked about today. Hi. Welcome. Um, Yeah, so the best, uh, first way to start practice is really just to bring your attention to the breath. Notice the physical sensation of the breath in whatever way is most prominent for you. 
Could be to your belly, could be to your chest, could be the internal sensation of the breath moving out, could be the breath of the tip of the nose. And try to be present with it. And as you get distracted, which you will, begin again. Right? And the important thing is, like, don't blame yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Just like, oh, opportunity to begin again. Great. Back to the breath. Oh, opportunity to begin again. Great. Back to the breath. I would recommend to everybody sitting here. (laughs) Great question. I'd recommend at least 20 minutes a day. At least 20 minutes a day. It's more important to do it regularly than it is to do a lot, like once a week. Um, And in my experience, you need at least 20 minutes for the mind to begin to settle. So I strongly encourage everyone to be doing at least 20 minutes a day. Great question. How long did we sit for? We sat for about, I think, 25, 7 minutes, something like that. Somewhere between 25 and 30 minutes. I heard something that's not... You've talked about compassion in the past, but I heard Mm. you... We listened to a podcast that talked about um, compassion being greater between people who are in your group or in your society, or and that the the broader the society is, and the, the the wider the group, people, the nation, yeah. the global society, yeah. the greater the capacity for for compassion, which we've talked about. And and at one point in this podcast, somebody else came in and said compassion. That's mindfulness. This is not the two are synonyms for each other. And I wonder what you would say about that. I think there's a way in which it's true, and it's a way in which they're kind of different flavors, which you have to be aware of the different flavors. So compassion is sort of the quivering of the heart in response to another suffering with the intention to try to end that suffering. So I see your suffering, I care about your suffering, I want to do something about your suffering. Right? Mindfulness is being fully present with what is. Right, so, so in that sense, not exactly the same. Right? Different. But, being fully present with what is, when you're really present, I would say automatically brings compassion. Because right? when you're fully present without any of the barriers or the, the things holding you back, then of course the heart is moved when it sees suffering. Now, you're not always mindful of suffering. Right? So compassion arises in relationship to suffering. Sometimes you're mindful of joy. Well, then compassion doesn't arise then just like awareness of joy arises, and that's lovely, right? So that's fine. So it's not that mindfulness is always compassion, but mindfulness gives rise to compassion. And the second piece is, and here I'd sort of put compassion and love together, is that mindfulness requires compassion and love. Because, two, two ways. One is, the way I said before, which is, when we see things truly, we love them automatically. And, and I, again, I just offer that to you. You can think about like, Anytime you've had an intense encounter of truth, where you're like, you've really seen it that time. You know, often this happens for people in moments of, you know, intenseness that can be birth, it could be death, it can be, you know, connecting with somebody in a deep way, right? But when we have that, there's a kind of love present there. There's a love present just in the presence, right? And the second part is that because so much of what we're present with is difficult and we want to run away, we actually can't be present with it without the love. It's a love and compassion, both for ourselves and for what we're encountering, that allows us to actually be present, to be with what is there. Because if love and compassion isn't there, in my experience, it's actually too overwhelming for the mind. But it's like, this is actually too scary. I'm going to run away now. But even if we're not trying to, it's just going to run away. And when the compassion and love is strong, then the mind can say, oh, I see that, and it's really scary, but actually I can hold that. 
I can be with that. Because I'm not overwhelmed by the place of the fear. Right? Because in a certain sense, fear can't be strongly present where love is present. So my sister, who's an actress, she says, she goes up on stage, and uh, she's feeling scared. She picks somebody in the audience, she thinks doesn't like her, and just starts sending love to him. Right? Just starts sending love to him. Right? And it's like, oh yeah, all of a sudden you're not my enemy. It's like the opposite of what Rish Chachma said, right? Instead of assuming he's the enemy, we assume he's the beloved. It's like it changes the whole interaction. It's like, oh yeah, for sure you're the beloved. For sure you're the beloved. Right? And then all of a sudden there's no fear. And there's lots of spaciousness. We uh, We could probably have a short one. Okay. We'll see how further this spots it. So I, I also read something recently on, or I saw something on the TED Talk about, about surprises. Yeah. And it said, talk on education. Part of the, I'm saying that, that there's part of the brain, which is the basal forebrain, which kind of like, like stores information and codes information, which is very active in learning. And then there's another part of the brain that is wired for like, like realizing surprises. Mm. And that realizing surpri- surprises is generally like a scary phenomenon. Mm. It has like a negative, negative connotation thing really interesting, which is that those two parts of your brain fire at the same time, which is like you're learning and like getting material, and then you have like that aha moment, Yeah. that your brain releases like a triple like dose or whatever of dopamine, mm-hmm. which is like he says one of the highest um, natural release dopamine you can get, mm-hmm. which is amazing. So insight yeah. is pleasurable. Yeah. Yeah. Like right? Really pleasurable. Insight is pleasurable. Yeah. We get insight, we're like, ah, oh. the body relaxes, the body's excited, it's like both invigorated and relaxed at the same time, right? It's like, ah, oh, wow, <laughs> I saw that, yeah, yeah. So that's why it's a practice of insight, right? Because when we're continually waking up and noticing, noticing, then when the insight comes, we're totally open to the insight, instead of being like, oh, that can't be right, that contradicts something else I know. It's like, oh, I really see that, I really see that, beautiful. So maybe we have a week of surprises <laughs> and insights. I'm going to continue next week. You've been listening to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. For more information about Or Halev and how to stay up to date with our podcasts, visit the website at orhalev.org.